journalist Lukanya Kalata is probably better known for his brave stance against editorial censorship as one of the SABC8. But there's a far deeper crevice in his psyche in which the memory of a horrific apartheid killing festers, the murder of his father when Lukanya was just a child of 3. Fort Kalata, one of the Cradock 4, met a violent end on the night of the 27th of June 1985. To date, No one has been prosecuted for his murder or that of the other victims, Matthew Goniwe, Sparum Konto and Sitelum Klauli. Fort and Matthew were teachers who'd become sharp thorns in the flesh of the apartheid government due to their relentless activism in Cradock, a small eastern Cape town about 250 kilometers from Port Elizabeth. Sparrow was a railway worker and unionist who was instrumental in leading the youth. Stella was an old friend of Matthew who may not even have died that night had he not been visiting Matthew to catch up. What stands out is how strategically these four men were intercepted and killed to put an end to the feverish activism emanating from the Eastern Cape. And yet their executions did the opposite, fueling a fire that turned into a blaze. More recently, Lukanyo and his wife Abigail have joined forces in the book My Father Died for This to try to create a road map of the events leading up to the killings of the Cradock Four. For Lukanyo, it's been a difficult journey back in time to a period he doesn't remember quite so well anymore. I don't remember uh, basically anything about my father when he was alive. Uh, my first memories of anything that relate to my father are are the funeral. um on the 20th of July um 1985 your family is a family forged in the fires of the liberation struggle what informed your father's political consciousness i think my father's political consciousness was informed largely by uh, his grandfather uh the reverend james khalata or tato as we call him uh in at home as well as in Cradock. Mm-hmm. Uh he of course was a, a former secretary general of uh, the ANC. He was a president of uh, the Cape ANC. And I think he had such a major influence in 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 my father's life and in his political uh understanding and his political consciousness. And I think the town of Cradock itself uh what we were able to find out uh you know as we were doing the research for the book was that the Ling- the, the, the township of Lingelihle was so politically conscious that there there were people from coming from outside and coming to study in Lingelihle and one of the first things that they would happen uh was that they would become you know politically conscientized just because of the the environment the society the community there that was so uh, politically conscious so my father grew up in that environment and and I think obviously he he you know he absorbed all of it Abigail you've written about the process of piecing together this father-in-law you never knew to try to build up a mosaic of who he was how did you go about that well um a lot of the information that I got about Lukanyo's dad, my father-in-law, was from his mother. Um, I conducted a series of um, interviews over a couple of days um, with his mother, and um, so we spoke about most things. Other people that also informed who he was was his sister. 
Peggy Travata. Um, unfortunately, she passed last year, but we got a good interview in with her. And childhood friends told us about him, um, people who were with him, fellow activists that are still in Craddock told us about him. So there were a lot of people, a lot of the information, the personal information was gleaned from individuals that personally knew him. You also were able to piece together the elements of this beautiful love affair between Fort and Normande, even though there was this underlying tension running beneath because he was an activist whose safety was constantly at risk. It was always going to be me who wrote the love story. Um, I always make the joke that um, I was going to be the Eleanor Susulu to the Kalatas, <laughs> that I'm going to be telling the story of Fort and Normandy Kalata. And so it was also the first time for me to hear the stories in their entirety. Um, it was lovely for me to sit and just hear them from beginning to the end, even the really heart-wrenching parts um, to listen and be part of um, Namonde remembering the really good times and then, you know, the really, really bad and sad and tragic times that followed his death. Your father, Lukanyu, together with activists like Matthew Goniwe, put himself in the firing line by taking a stand against apartheid. Those must have been really trying years for your family. My mother always, you know, talks about the fact that my father was a musician and, you know, she wishes that he could have rather concentrated on, on the music aspect of, of his personality other than the politics side of it. Because for her, it, had he, you know, shunned politics or had he steer, uh, steered clear of it, uh, most, most likely he would still be alive today and he would have been there to help her raise us. But I think my father's upbringing, his... Um, just his political uh, consciousness uh, compelled him and drove him, uh, you know, to become politically active. So when he met up with Matthew and they, uh, you know, there was an understanding uh, between them and they started working together. Uh, and then by the time that Credora was formed and that they were, you know, really uh, uh, Conscientizing the community and the community was was also starting to understand what was required of them. Uh, obviously, the police had noticed all of this activity, and there was a lot of harassment of 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 both Matthew and my father. Luganyo's mother, Nomonde Kalata, recalls how the security police harassed the family during that period. It was about four a.m. or three a.m. And the whole township was surrounded and there was a, a helicopter shouting that Matthew has no water to give to you people. He has no houses. Don't be scared. You will be protected by the police. Then they, the police came to search for, for Fort and they were looking for documents and papers and things. And at a later stage, Venter came into my room and he was like, he seated on, on my bed. And he asked me, uh, Mrs. Kalata, where is your husband? And I said to him, my husband is not here, he's in Johannesburg. And then he said to me, you can hide him anyway, but tell him, I will get hold of him. And when I get hold of him, he will shit himself. So, Lucanio, you recount so carefully in this book your mother's memory of that Thursday, the 27th of June, 1985, the day your father went missing. Can you briefly recount that to us, Lucanio? My mom says 
it you know it was a it was a normal day. I was a little bit uh, sick. Uh, I think I had the mumps. And so we woke up the Thursday morning and there was really no issues. The day before, my mom, uh, my father had taken me to uh, go see the doctor. So uh, he got the, he then got ready uh, because Matthew was going to come and, and, and pick him up. So Matthew then arrived um, just shortly before 10 o'clock that morning. Uh, my father, you know, got into the car. As he was leaving, there was a, a priest, my mother says, that was going to uh, stay over at our, at our home for the weekend. He was there for a conference. And so my father left and my mother then got ready. She had an appointment. She was seven months pregnant at the time. Usually when my dad and Matthew left to go to, um, um, to Port Elizabeth, they would come back quite late and sometimes my father would eat and so she started preparing supper and um sorry <laughs> she started preparing supper and um you know she, she she dished for everybody when the food was ready and she she put his plate aside she dished for my father and she put the um his food aside um obviously in anticipation of him coming back uh, during the time that she was busy preparing, um, my older sister, Dorothy, um, who was just, just short of her 10th birthday, uh, recorded a, um, a television program uh, that she and my father used to watch, a music television program called The Pop Shop. And Dorothy remembers that day also quite clearly because... It, uh, there was a song there, uh, a song by Julio Iglesias, uh, When I Need You, uh, that debuted uh, on that show. So yeah. Dorothy then recorded that episode thinking, you know, she and, 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 and our father would be able, when, when he has time, maybe over the weekend, they would be able to watch the show as they had done so many uh, times before. So a little bit later on that evening, uh, my mom got us ready, uh, put us into bed. The priest uh, that was staying over then took over the room that Dorothy and I were using. So we ended up uh, getting into bed with um, with my mom. Mm -hmm. And she says she, you know, she really struggled to uh, to sleep. And one uh, one of the things that she remembers was that this, there was something very different about that night. Uh, different in the sense that usually there was a, a police surveillance vehicle that was parked not too far from our home. That was, you know, constantly looking at the movement uh, in and out of people. But that night, my mother says there was nothing, you know, uh, it was just dead quiet. And uh, it, you know, she felt uneasy about it, and then. So, so that was her first inkling that that something was not quite right here. Yes, uh, I I don't think she knew about it at the time, but she she says that she felt quite uneasy because, you know, the the normal routine of you know now and again you'd hear the police Casper driving past, mm -hmm. the police the, the the police surveillance van uh, wasn't there, so. Things weren't as they normally were. Uh, and she says that she couldn't sleep. And when after about 10 or 11, when there was still no sign of, of, of my father, um, you know, she she went um, and she woke up the, 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 the priest and, you know, told her how concerned she was that Fort would have by now... Um, 
let her know or he would have either been home or he would have by now let her know that um you know they they were on their way or they were going to sleep over in port elizabeth but you know there was nothing so and then the priest she says the priest then tried to reassure that no ma'am you know i'm sure they're probably on the way or you know or maybe they might even sleep over in port elizabeth and she said that she was insistent that there was no ways uh that if he was going to sleep over he would have sent a message uh to say that he wouldn't uh, they would sleep over and then at about 12 o'clock she was still struggling to sleep she says she then went outside now Craddock in winter is bitterly bitterly cold mm-hmm. you know and when she tells the story she talks about you know when she stepped outside and walked onto the stoop firstly just how cold and how dark the night was and she says she went to go and stand by by the gate and looked both up and down the street for a few minutes hoping that at any moment you know that she will see the the lights of 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 Matthew's Honda uh, arrive uh but there were no lights um you know and then she thought you know what maybe they've uh they slept over at at, at Molly Blackburn's home um in Port Elizabeth and she says that she went obviously then came back to bed uh, where Dorothy and I were sleeping but still you know it was it, she was restless because it was also not the kind of thing that my father did he he wouldn't just um just be quiet like that and and uh, and not let her know and she says she did fall asleep but it was a very light sleep obviously in t- in anticipation that at any moment you know she will hear the car and my father would come knocking on the door yes. but that knock never came Nomonde was pregnant when her husband went missing the morning after he'd left she was called to a community hall and sat there comforting Nyami Matthew Goniwe's wife in response to the news that he'd been killed at first Nomonde had no idea Fort would never live to see his last born child people came to fetch me so that I can go and join Nyami and them Got there, Nyami was seated there and she was like crying. And I also started to cry, I burst into tears. I did not know why Nyami was crying, but because she was crying, I started to cry also. At later, then Omkili and them and Chief and them came and they told us that the body of Strelo and Sparrow were found. Gili was one of the people that when the bodies were first uh found or was one of, of the delegation that then went down to Port Elizabeth to go and identify his bodies to go and identify the bodies and the way he was describing um what he found what he saw it's always stuck with me because i remember him explaining to i think he was explaining to Dorothy when he said when he looked i think it was sparrow's body mm. he said when he looked at sparrow's body it's almost like he could see the hate of the people that had killed the sparrow because they had left evidence of their hate in his remains i was given that unenviable task of identifying um one of the bodies that lay there and I saw immediately that it was Sparrow in Kondo. They showed me a second one who happened to be Skelong Saudi. 
And then we asked the police, uh, where were the other two? Because four were traveling in the same car. And they said they didn't know. Days passed, nothing. Then the priest told us that our husbands have also been found, but they are no longer alive. The reality of what had happened only began to hit home when Sitelo Mplauli's father returned to Sitelo's widow, Nombuyiselo, with news of what had been done to him. I went down to New Brighton police station together with the other comrades. And Uputgidi was amongst them. I remember that. When they came back, my father-in-law was not himself at all. He kept on talking to my, to himself, you know. He said, Mdana, my child, they've killed us. They've killed my child. And I don't know why they've killed him so brutally. I've seen him. I've seen him. I've seen his body. His body's badly bent. There wasn't much time for the families to nurse their pain. They were on the cusp of a funeral that would lead to a renewed revolt and the declaration of a state of emergency. Join me for the next installment to find out how the Craddock Four killings tipped the balance in favor of the liberation struggle. <laughs>